welcome to the Airline Weekly Lounge. I'm your host, Edward Russell, and this week we are featuring a keynote address on the state of the industry that I delivered at an Orlando Airport Terminal C pre-opening event earlier in September. Please enjoy. Well, good morning, everyone. Thank you for the introduction, Raquel. It's a pleasure to be here in this beautiful terminal today. Uh, I, I've told a few of you the last time I was here, there was just pilings in the ground. So it's amazing to see it really come, to, come together. So today I want to talk a little bit about where the airline industry is now coming out of the coronavirus pandemic. So more Americans traveled this summer than at any time since the pandemic began. If you look at this chart from Skift Research, 53% of Americans hit the road in July. 53%. That's impressive considering only 18% of Americans were traveling in April 2020 during the height of the pandemic. Now, not all of those people uh, flew. Many hit the road, some took the train, but airplanes were full, airports were packed this summer, and if any of you wanted to buy a ticket somewhere, I'm sure you experienced the high airfares that, that were being charged. Now, travel wasn't without its challenges this summer. Staffing issues affected a lot of airlines. We had, a, there's a pilot shortage amongst regional carriers that's impacting service. Um, a lot of entry level positions were difficult to fill. And I know airports have faced those, many, many businesses in the hospitality industry. And then there's something that in the, in the airline industry they call juniority. Uh, in other words, early in the pandemic, a lot of senior staff left airlines and that was a bit of a brain drain. They lost that, that knowledge. And so some airlines have hired these people back they're, they're back to pre-pandemic numbers, but the new staff just don't have that experience. So even if numbers were back, they weren't able to handle the same number of passengers, the same number of flights as before. And so that really impacted airlines this summer. On top of all these things, there was weather, uh, air traffic control had its constraints. As many of you here know, uh, Jacksonville Center, uh, which handles all the flights between most of the US and, and Florida, uh, they had staffing issues. And then you know, locally, there were space launches, which also disrupt flights here at Orlando. And I've been watching the Artemis launch, so you know, that's been postponed, but I'm sure that'll offer some uh, new flight uh, delays when that happens. All told, airlines flew about 15% fewer flights this summer than they planned. And while airlines typically put out a larger schedule than they, do, uh, than they plan to fly, 15% is higher than what they uh, would normally cut. So it, it wasn't a great summer for airlines, and, like I said, passengers paid the price with delayed and canceled flights and high airfares. All said though, the US air travel recovery is nearly complete. Now, Kevin touched on MCO and how domestic uh, numbers are up. And this chart, which is from Airlines for America, shows uh, air travel uh, volumes uh, at the end of August. And domestic was down just 2%, 2% at the end of August, which like I said, I mean, Pretty much no one was flying in April 2020, and, and here we are two years later. Now, just for a little context, when I was writing about the industry in 2020, 2021, people were saying we wouldn't see a full recovery till maybe 2023, probably 2024. Here we are, 2022. And over Labor Day, TSA screened 3% more people than they did in 2019, which is the first sustained holiday weekend above 2019 numbers. So, you know, domestic travel is back. It's, uh, it's pretty impressive. International is a different story. You know, this Airlines for America data shows it's still down about 4% at the end of, uh, end of August. 
And that's a bit of, uh, there's two sides of that tale. Near international destinations like Mexico and the Caribbean, more people are going there than they did before. But Asia is still largely closed off. So that's still got a ways to go. Orlando Airport is one of the airports that's really benefited from the recovery. So what we've seen is leisure travel travelers came back first. People wanted to get out of their houses after you know, what, they, what we would call in the industry pent-up demand. You know, they wanted to go to outdoor destinations, beaches, mountains, theme parks, golf courses. And Orlando Airport has really proved, been proven to be a durable destination for those travelers. People want to come here. As you can see, there's far fewer airports that will have more seats in September and October than did in 2019. And Orlando is an even smaller group that will have 10, more than 10% more seats. So that clearly shows that airlines are flying where people want to go, and that's Orlando. It also benefits this airport that you have some of the fastest recovering airlines have bases here. You know, Frontier Airlines, Spirit Airlines, Southwest Airlines will all be up this fall. Frontier and Spirit by double digits. And then the airport has also benefited from some of the new startups that we've seen during the pandemic. Avello Airlines has opened a base here. And then from Europe, North Atlantic Airways, a low-cost, long-haul carrier, is serving Orlando as their first destination in Florida. So looking forward, the industry is expecting a slowdown in travel as we move into the fall. And there's nothing to be worried about there. That typically happens. Kids go back to school after Labor Day. People are back in the office. Travel slows down. But with concerns about inflation, and a potential recession, you know, people have been asking questions, but airlines have yet to see any real slowdown in demand beyond the historic trends. So that's good. What airlines are hoping for is that business travel comes back this fall. According to Airlines for America, bookings are still down for corporate travel about 28% compared to 2019 in August. So there's still a ways to go there, and airlines are hoping that corporate travelers are gonna have the same pent-up demand that leisure travelers have had uh, this fall. So people want to see their clients they haven't seen in a few years, maybe meet colleagues that they've only had Zoom meetings with. So there's really a hope that there's going to be a step up in that corporate travel this fall. And then some of the bigger trends that we've seen during the pandemic uh, are continuing. One of those was the rise of premium leisure travel. Now, a premium leisure traveler is someone who maybe before the pandemic would buy an economy seat, stay at a courtyard by Marriott, and hey, no offense to courtyard by Marriott's, I stay at them all the time, Love them. But now as those travelers are willing to spend up a little bit, buy maybe a premium economy seat, a business class seat, stay at a nicer hotel. And those travelers have stayed from the pandemic and through the recovery. Airlines are investing. They're buying, putting in more premium seats, Delta, United, Air France, all investing in this. And you know, places like in this terminal, this beautiful terminal, you've got a Plaza Premium Lounge, which is an amenity that those travelers really look for. So, this airport is setting up well to, to meet that new demand and, and really meet the growing number of passengers. If you're interested in learning more, please visit airlineweekly.com. If, you, if you're interested, we have an exciting subscription offer and Raquel, happy to chat more. What I love is that, uh, Edward, you are a salesman at heart because you wanna get people to sign up for the subscription, which is absolutely fantastic. And I applaud you for that. I'm so excited to have this, this chat here, uh, especially after we gave a state of the industry. 
Out of all those slides that you went through, what is the one most surprising statistic that as you compile this presentation for those in the room, that even caught you by surprise? It was how much domestic air travel has come back this summer. You know, I, I should say that airlines are still flying about 10% less overall than they flew in 2019. But when I saw that traffic was down just 2% domestically in August, like, that really struck me. And then when I saw the Labor Day numbers yesterday, I mean, up over Labor Day, I mean, you've got to understand when I was writing about this industry in 2020 and people were saying 2024 for recovery, some people were saying, you know, maybe travel might never recover, like at least business travel. It was, it were dark days and now to see it back. And we're in 2022, this is far faster than anyone expected. And that's really what struck me putting this together. You know, those in the room here dealt with the tourism industry, quite frankly, going on halt when COVID happened. You know, there were stakeholder meetings, there were, you know, planning sessions to make sure it happens. When we heard 2024 was going to be pre-pandemic levels, I think everybody thought, we don't have that much time. We need that to happen now to see. So that, see that exponential growth in a, in a short amount of time is very reassuring for the industry as a whole. You use the word durable, and I liked that word. Yes. No, yeah, it's, it's this, this, it's, yeah, very durable. That's, that's for sure. The key word also resilient. You know, the, the key words that we hear a lot these days are sustainability and resiliency. I think we all love those words given the pandemic. In fact, the COVID is, is one of the milestones that you said you had covered that really changed your outlook on the industry. Does that really change how you project 5, 10, 15 years from now, given you've seen how fast you've been able to bounce back, if you will? Absolutely. So, you know, the airline industry has always been subject to highs and lows, recessions, and, you know, macroeconomic events. But COVID, I mean, when we were at the beginning of this, we really looked like this could be dark days. I mean, we're warning airline bankruptcies and everything. I mean, the Fed stepped in the U.S. and, and protected airlines. But, I mean, travel has just proven so durable. And I think it's, it's, a, it's more than just uh, airlines. It's, it's a, there's a cultural shift. I mean, I'm a millennial. I talk about millennials, Gen Z. You know, we really appreciate experiences more than buying stuff. And we've seen those, you know, my generation, younger people have flocked back to travel, going, you know, what is digital nomad life. And, and we're seeing, like, people want to get out there. And I, I really see that going forward is, you know, despite what economic shocks or you know, come, people want to travel. They want to come to destinations. And, yeah, it's, it's really, it's, it has really confirmed, like, my view and, and really changed it about the, the durability of this industry. You know, one of the interesting things about the airline industry, especially COVID, what, what is it that you think the airline industry did well that helped position it to bounce back fairly quick? And what do you think they could have done better to prepare themselves to come out of it? You know, I mean, I know we've bounced back faster than we anticipated, but what's the one thing that you think they did well? I think early on, airlines were very adept to put, stop flying. You know, it, it was tough. It, you, it, no airline wants to stop flying. I mean, that's how they make their money. But we didn't see airlines flying planes around for months at a time empty. We saw, you know, I always think Delta, an image of all the Delta planes parked the runway at Atlanta Airport. Like, that was within a month of, of the pandemic happening. And I think I really applaud all the people in the airline industry that put, you know, put these planes down so quickly, parked the airline because they knew that they, they were, you know, hemorrhaging money. And I really applaud. That wasn't an easy thing to do. Mm -hmm. On top of that, I should say, 
airlines maintain connectivity because even in April 2020, we had essential workers that had to travel around the country to, to treat COVID cases. And you know, airline staff were working hard. You know, they had to completely throw out the schedules that they'd built you know, for years. And they don't, you know, I should say an airline doesn't rebuild their schedule every month. Like they take the schedule they had last year and tweak it and stuff. But these people had to basically throw it out, build an entirely new schedule where they, they maintain you know, a connection so you could get from New York to Tucson maybe only one time a day because no one's traveling, but they still need to do that. And you know, that was an amazing challenge and the airlines rose to, the, rose to that occasion. I mean, they had the opportunity, quite frankly, to start from scratch. Exactly. Which, you exactly. Know, I don't know how much of that is still lingering today, but the ability to just rebuild from the ground up, it gives you the ability to change some of the challenges that they had pre-pandemic. Right, and a lot of airlines will tell you now that they really, they've taken flexibility out of this. Mm -hmm. And you know, that's something I hope they keep because in this industry, I mean, you need flexibility and stuff. But you also asked Raquel about what, um, you know, what they could have done better. Right. And the thing that I've heard repeatedly is that you know, airlines were a little maybe too aggressive at offering these early, early buyout packages, early retirements to staff early on in the pandemic, and, and too many people left. And that's what's caused some of the staffing, the juniority issues that they're facing today. Now, if you remember, the CARES Act prevented them from involuntarily furloughing people, which was great. We would have seen far more people drop out of the industry if that, if that hadn't happened. But a lot of staff still left with those packages. And, and that's created some of the struggles that airlines are facing today. And speaking of airlines, you know, you covered since 2012, U.S. Airways and United merger. American, American merger. I apologize to my <laughs> friends in the room. I apologize. Scrap that from the record. <laughs> but we are also in the midst of JetBlue and spirit, right? Pending merger there as well. What are some of the similarities and differences? And the key here is, is it going to be good for consumers? Because at the end of the day, the consumers are going to come here to the Orlando area. Absolutely. So let's talk about similarities first. Um, uh, JetBlue Spirit is sort of built on the idea that a larger airline is going to be more durable, more profitable, frankly, than a smaller carrier is going to be. And this, that, that idea has been proven again and again, first with, uh, Ameri with US Airways America West in 2005, and every merger since then has proven that basically airlines can gain more pricing power, they can charge more, which isn't necessarily good for consumers, but it's good for the bottom line if you're an airline. So that's what's, what's behind the JetBlue Spirit, the con, like why they, well, why JetBlue wants to merge with Spirit. Um, but it's, uh, it's, it's going to be, it's the differences between American U.S. Airways are significant. You know, that was a deal that you, then U.S. Airways CEO Doug Parker really pushed, uh, which American at first was hesitant, but he got the unions on board, he got staff on board, he got everyone behind him before American agreed to a deal, which proved to be really good because the U.S. Airways American merger avoided a lot of the culture clash that some previous deals have happened. And when I see the JetBlue Spirit deal happen, it's, you know, really JetBlue has appealed to the investor community to get behind them, and, and that's ultimately how they won the bid for, for Spirit. Uh, but I don't see that labor buy-in yet. Yes, some of the unions have come out saying that they will, you know, work with the, the combined airline. But, you know, the potential for a culture clash between a budget carrier and JetBlue, which is a bit of a hybrid, is significant. And I, I mean, that's a concern. And then you also asked about consumers, right? Consumers. Is this going to be good for consumers? Because at the end of the day, you know, you want to hope that it's good for us that we're going to be sitting yes, in airplanes. Yes, yes. 
Probably not, sorry, <laughs> to be blunt. <laughs> Spirit is, is a, a extremely budget carrier. If any of you have flown, you know, you're gonna be peanuts for your ticket, but then you're gonna pay $25 for a seat and a bag and stuff. But they drive a lot of traffic. They have low costs, they're able to charge cheap fares, and they serve an important part of the market. JetBlue does not sit in that part of the market. JetBlue is more of a mid-tier airline. They're between the Americans, Uniteds, and Deltas, but they're not budget either. And frankly, JetBlue's costs are, I don't know the exact numbers, but they are a good deal higher than Spirit's. And so the, the truth is, is they can't charge fares as cheap as Spirit does. So a merger is going to result in some higher fares. That's, I mean, that's the simple logic of it. Nice, short and sweet, right? <laughs> <laughs> Obviously the reason that we're here is to support the growth here for Terminal C. Seventh busiest airport in the world. And I love seeing a statistic like that that really pins us up against some of the bigger players in the world, right? right. I like to say universe, but let's say <laughs> world. Uh, one of the key differentiating factors for MCO as a whole, when you look at Terminal A, Terminal B, and Terminal C, is the ability to do multimodal connectivity, regional mobility with Brightline, who will be doing tours later as well after you do you know, tour of Terminal C. Uh, so 2023 is gonna be kind of the line in the sand for where we're finally going to be a multimodal destination. How does this make MCO that much more attractive both for domestic travelers, which is a majority of our traffic, and also for international travelers as well? I see it makes MCO a lot more attractive. I've spoken to two airline CEOs, uh, foreign airline CEOs just this year who have mentioned Brightline in their route considerations. Um, one of them, North Atlantic, started service in, in August, mm -hmm. I believe. Yep. Yeah. And you know, they've talked about it. And, and another, which isn't coming in right now, but Play Airlines out of Iceland, their CEO really touted uh, Brightline as a great attractiveness to this airport. And the, the truth is, is foreign visitors expect, expect to get off their flight be able to you know, easily walk to a train if they need to go to the car, you know, rental car center, like whatever it is. You know, it is a driver, and as more airlines expand to the US, and internationally that's gonna happen, because the US market is, is proven extremely resilient and durable and come back from the pandemic. These airlines are, are gonna be looking for this connection. So, I should say, when I'm an airline and I'm looking at where to serve in Florida, Orlando having a train station that can get my passengers to Disney, to Fort Lauderdale, to Miami, to Tampa eventually, I'm gonna be like, wow, that's a great opportunity. I wanna fly there because my passengers can go on and I don't have to fly to Miami and Tampa and Orlando. Yeah, maybe someday I will. But for a first point, that makes Orlando much more attractive. And I think we're gonna see a lot more of that once the rail line actually comes into the airport. I mean, quite frankly, it's meeting travelers what they want already, right? It's what they expect. It's part of the experience, which is what Orlando is known for. Uh, I always like to do these rapid fire questions <laughs> and don't worry, we'll not put you in trouble. <laughs> so she says. <laughs> so I say, what's your favorite airport? Don't answer that. It's Terminal CMCO, right? It's an, I'm, a, I'm a mind of course, reader. Of course. Mind reader, okay. What's your best meal that you've ever had in an airport and where? Chiliquiles at the Mexico City Airport, New Year's Day morning. It was amazing. Why? Why? Probably because I was hungover and really. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Very honest answer, which I appreciate. Most interesting amenity you've ever seen at an airport? Oh, that's a good one. Um, oh, I love. Oh gosh, stump me. Yoga rooms are fantastic. I'll say yoga that. rooms. Yeah, yoga rooms. Kevin, yoga room. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Something you wish airports should have but don't. Gyms. Every airport should have a gym. Yeah. 
for the layovers. Yes, absolutely. Because I just want to sleep on the you know couch. When oh no no no! I I like to work out on my layovers, so I love gyms. Yeah. Sounds like something for the premium plaza. <laughs> <laughs> okay, travel alone or travel with company? Oh. Oh, well, I, I have a, a small child, so I have really grown to enjoy traveling with him. He's great. Uh, so I'm going to say traveling with company. Window or aisle seat? Window, always. Why? Why? Just look out. And never with the shade down. Shades are up. Yes. Yeah. All the time. All the mm -hmm. time. I'm a window person, too. Okay. So the last one, because I want everybody to walk away today with an action plan to support the growth here for Terminal C and for MCO. So those in the room, you've met a number of them. It's a cross-section of the Orlando region, from tourism to businesses to banking to binational chambers, I mean, you name it, yeah. these are the people that make, the companies that make the Orlando economic region tick, right? So what can those in the room today do to support keeping Orlando in the spot as the seventh busiest airport in the world and maybe take us up toward the sixth and the fifth? <laughs> Well, it's really, I mean, a whole community that supports an airport. It's everything. It's the theme parks. It's the sports venues. It's, it's the golf course. Like everything that supports this airport. But really, the fact that the community has supported the city and the airport and the county as it's built this, this facility and through the pandemic has, is key. Because, like I said, seats are up 10% this fall. And they're only going to keep going up. This terminal, now I know there was some risk that it could have been paused during the pandemic. Some parts were paused. And the fact that you guys kept building is amazing. And you need to keep supporting this airport as it goes forward because, you know, airlines never complain about having new terminals, really. They complain about not having access to an airport. So if you wait too long and an airline can't get in, they're going to they're gonna fly to Tampa. They're going to fly to Fort Lauderdale. But the fact that you've got this and you continue to offer the airlines amenities that they want, that's, that's fantastic and you should keep doing that. Speaking of delays too, a little bit of grace goes a long way. Absolutely. When you're traveling, just remember, probably the person behind the desk is most likely new. Just be a little calm, you know, be, be that patient with them. You know, they're working hard, they're doing their best. We've all been so new at a job and it's stressful and it's, you know, it, yeah, just a little grace would be great. And for those of you in the room who will end up taking some of those passengers after they leave the airport, you too play a critical role in ensuring that that experience that they have after they leave the airport is just as cohesive and as seamless. So. Thank you very much, and round of applause for Edward Russell. Thank you for joining us for this week's episode of the Airline Weekly Lounge podcast. Check out airlineweekly.com for a new issue every Monday and updates on the latest airline news throughout the week.